Please open your Bibles back to Romans chapter 1. It's going to be a little bit before we get to it, but I want you to be prepared to look at the Word in your own copy of Scriptures when the time comes, so please open to Romans 1. Here we are, final session, and our focus is going to be on sexuality. Anybody who has been awake for the last decade knows that we are living through a literal revolution. We're on a train that is heading in the wrong direction, and it keeps speeding up, or on a submarine, if you will. And please join me in praying that the Lord would use this time, this last occasion we have together this morning, to instruct us, to encourage us, to convict us, and to challenge us through the Word. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that as we come to this really contentious area of our modern-day culture, that You would allow us right now to be instructed by the Word, not by our emotions, not by our feelings, not by our upbringing, not by the world that surrounds us, not by the culture, not by the news, not by uh, modern media, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we engage with Your Word, and in doing so, we engage with You. We pray, Lord, that You would transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. The sexual revolution that we are experiencing in our culture is such a big topic. It would be really easy for us to have just made this the entire conference uh, because it is so pervasive in our society. But our approach to this final sermon is not going to get to the granular level of all the various perversions that exist in our modern culture, but instead we are going to ask and answer four questions about the sexual revolution in general. First, what is it? Second, what isn't it? Third, why does it exist? And fourth, how should Christians respond? Let's begin by trying to understand what the sexual revolution is. Just what is it? Well, let's break down the word revolution. A revolution is a rapid change. It is a cultural or political paradigm shift. It is an idea that is usually championed by a few influential voices, and then it garners a massive following who make it their aim in life to implement this new ideology. That's a revolution. And the sexual revolution is a paradigm shift around the morality of sex and gender. It is not a scientific debate about biology. It is not a sociological debate about what is beneficial to society. In fact, if you just want to talk about biology or if you want to talk about sociology, it is well documented that the sexual revolution is the farthest thing from either of those two categories. The sexual revolution is a revolution of morality. Theo Hobson, who is a British theologian, boiled down the three stages of a moral revolution like this. Step number one something that was nearly universally condemned is now nearly universally celebrated. Second, that which was celebrated must now be condemned. And third, those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. If that does not describe the massive shift in our culture that has taken place over the last 10 to 20 years, then I don't know what does. Allow me to share three quotes with you by way of illustration. Quote number one, I believe marriage is not just a bond, but a sacred bond between a man and a woman. 
the fundamental bedrock principle that marriage exists between a man and a woman going back into the midst of history as one of the founding, foundational institutions of history and humanity and civilization, and that its primary principal role during those millennia has been the raising and socializing of children for the society into which they are to become adults. That's quote number one. Quote number two, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. I am not in favor of gay marriage. That's quote number two. Quote number three, I like the idea of amending the 1964 Civil Rights Act to include a ban of discrimination against any sexual orientation. It would be very simple. It would be straightforward. We don't need to rewrite the laws currently on the books, although I do think we need to address it in terms of hate crime legislation. But amending the Civil Rights Act would grant the same protections to gay people that we give to any other American. That's only fair. The first quote is pretty good. Actually, I think it's an excellent quote. Do you know where that comes from? That was Hillary Clinton back in 2004 when she was a senator. The second quote, that was less emphatic, yes, but it was still a good quote condemning the idea of homosexual marriage. Well, that was Barack Obama when he was running for president in 2008. That was just 15 years ago. In fact, Barack Obama didn't actually approve of or promote homosexual marriage until 11 years ago. In the scope of history, that's a blink of an eye. And before anyone accuses me of being political here, you need to consider two things. A, the third quote that I gave you, the one that was in favor of gay marriage and protections for homosexual activity, well, that actually came from Donald Trump. And that came from Donald Trump in an interview that he did with Advocate Ma Magazine in the year 2000. And that magazine is one of the original LGBTQ outlets in the entire world. In that article, he defends lifestyles and so-called marriages that many on the left in those days not only verbally condemned but actually legislated against. I'm not trying to be political. And the second reason I can promise you I'm not being political here is this. I don't believe that these politicians believe anything that they actually said. They're not saying this because they actually think it's true. And that's actually more helpful, helpful to us when we consider and look at what they're doing here because they are saying these things because they think you want to hear it. They were saying these things because they thought our culture wanted to hear it. And that was actually the case. In fact, when John McCain and Barack Obama debated in 2008, one of the very few things they agreed on was that they opposed gay marriage. It was not that long ago that the general consensus of all Americans was opposed to homosexuality. And the modern transgender agenda was nowhere to be seen. That's a brand new conversation. This revolution has occurred so rapidly that not even the most vocal proponents of the revolution can keep up with the shifting beliefs about what it is that's supposed to be celebrated. The sexual revolution is a direct attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is so because sex is something that was designed by God to be exclusively shared between husband and wife in the confines of marriage. And marriage is designed to be a picture of the gospel. The sexual revolution has had the institution of marriage in its crosshairs for over a century as feminism has redefined the roles within marriage and no-fault divorce has redefined the covenant of marriage itself and homosexuality has changed the genders of who is permitted to be married. 
These distortions of marriage are designed, whether intentionally or not, to taint the image of the gospel that God created to the point that Christ and the church throughout all time are to be loved and submissive to one another. Those things that we are supposed to see about Christ, the head of the church, and the church, the submissive bride of Christ, are completely obscured by the sexual revolution that is taking place. It is an attack on the gospel. And in case I have not been clear so far, the sexual revolution is a perversion of what was once created for good. It is a twisting of the desire to take the beautiful gift that the Lord designed to function only within marriage and then to warp it into something that God never created it to be. God created sex to be a giving of yourself to your spouse. And the sexual revolution has made it about taking for yourself from wherever you can. At its core, the sexual revolution is a revolution of religion, a religion that worships self. The central tenet of that religion is that the individual desire is never to be questioned or condemned. What you feel is preeminent and primary. You are defined not by what you do. You are not defined by your education. You are not defined by your employment. You are not defined by your achievements. You are defined by your desire. Whatever you are attracted to, that is the most significant thing about you, self-worship. It is a religion that celebrates with festivals and parades. It is a religion that seeks to evangelize through education and through its inclusion in media. It is a religion that has severe moral codes that require you to ostracize and to shun those who disagree with your choices through a modern process called being canceled. And for those who are canceled, there is either no opportunity for forgiveness or that is, there is a series of requirements intended to bring the offender into full submission to their agenda. It is a religion with its own eschatology, which means the doctrine about the end times. We believe the end is all about the return of Christ. Well, one of the ways that this revolution has been pushed by, the, by those who are seeking to get it uh, to a point of prominence in our society one of the ways that they push it is by claiming that anyone who opposes them is what? On the wrong side of... You've heard it many times. You're on the wrong side of history. Fidel Castro famously said, a revolution is a struggle to the death between the future and the past. That is why those who are promoting the LGBT agenda will often link biblical positions on sexuality and gender with atrocities. They will claim that our belief about marriage and about gender are like slavery or like the Holocaust. They have the audacity to claim that they can already tell that history is going to move in the direction that they are pushing things and that everyone, everyone in all future generations will look back and they will see them as good and they will look at us as evil. That is an eschatology. That is their position about, about the end. It is one of ultimate conquest of the LGBT agenda over all other views. In short, the sexual revolution is the proliferation of a pagan religion of self-worship that is taking place on a mass scale in our society. But point number two, let's also consider what the sexual revolution is not. The sexual revolution is not new. I really appreciated how Pastor Gage 
made it clear that there's just a lot of little pieces that have all come together to bring us where we were, where we are now. It's just a little turn here and a little turn there, and you just keep moving forward and you're way off track. The sexual revolution is not new, and it's also not exclusive to America or to Western civilization. It was not new when the Obergefell decision was made by the Supreme Court to legalize what is called same-sex marriage. It was not new when the Stonewall riots took place in, the 19, in 1969. In fact, it wasn't new when the hippie movement started with the rock and roll scene. It was not new when everyone in those days was attempting to push the sexual boundaries as far as they could. It was not new in the 1920s when the most famous, famous authors in our countries like country like Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald were more well known for their sexual perversity than they were for their actual books. It's not new. The sexual revolution has been going since the earliest times in history. Deuteronomy 22 speaks about cross-dressing and says that it was forbidden, indicating that gender-bending of some kind was already something that existed among the people of Israel or at least the societies around them. In Leviticus, Abominable practices like homosexuality and bestiality are condemned for the exact same reason. These perversions existed. They are not new. It's not new for mankind to twist or pervert what God has made for good and to turn it into something wicked. Although the implementation might be a little bit different and the psychology around it might be a little bit new or unique. And perhaps the scale and rapid nature of the cultural transformation is alarming, but it should not surprise us that a society that is opposed to God will do exactly what many ancient societies did, become obsessed with experimenting with sexual perversion. That's what societies do when they reject and oppose God. The Romans, they were famous for this. Julius Caesar, just look into his story. The Greeks, I've been to a few Greek places and I've seen the art that they've left behind. They were known for this. The Han Dynasty in China, the pre-Meiji era in Japan, the Mesopotamian cultures that surrounded the people of Israel, they all left tons of archaeological evidence that homosexual behavior was not only present, but it was celebrated to some extent in their societies. Sexual deviancy and this behavior, it's just one of the key markers of a society that is devoid of God. We're going to see that much more clearly in our third question of this session, which is, why does the sexual revolution exist? I hope you still have your finger in Romans chapter 1. We're going to continue studying where we left off in the text all the way back in session 1. Maybe you remember those days. But in order to give you a bit of a refresher on what we're going to consider, I want to actually begin by starting in verse 18 as we read so that you get the full argument that Paul is making here. He begins by saying, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse... For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All right, now that's where we stopped earlier. After we see this first step of having our foolish hearts darkened, what is the next step? What is the next move in terms of degradation? Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity for the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, Romans 1 is masterful in so many ways. But one of the most interesting things in terms of the reader's perspective is the way that it addresses both how individuals become debased as well as the way societies or groups begin to slide into deeper and deeper debauchery. Notice that verse 24 is speaking not about an individual, but about how wide swaths of people how a group of individuals joined forces to dishonor their own bodies with each other. This verse is talking about the same exact kind of societal decay that we see taking place in the culture around us. It also describes their sexual sin in a way, as a way to worship the creation rather than the creator. Now, I hope that you know enough about global history and other religions to not find it too surprising that sexual sin of all sorts has accompanied pagan worship forever. Cult prostitution was common at temples of all kinds all around the world. And in fact, if you want to go to certain places around the globe today, you will still find that this occurs with some regularity in certain places. But the use of pornography, fornication, going to nightclubs, what do you think that is? It's just another form of worshiping a created being in hopes of gaining satisfaction from it rather than worshiping the creator who designed you for something better. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, the sexual revolution exists because God has given many people over to this sort of passion. Considering the degrading nature of what Paul is saying, consider what he's saying here. Consider how disturbing and lowering this is of humanity. Think about what it means when, through Paul, the Holy Spirit says that these things are contrary to nature. He's saying, look, even animals get it. Even animals, just look out in the woods, and you will not find the kind of thing that you are doing. Even animals who were not made in the image of God, who do not have a conscience, know better about how you were created to operate than you do. Even though we are the pinnacle of God's creation, people who practice these things are put to shame by every lesser life form on the planet who understand that God created them to procreate in accordance with the natural design. And you might think that sounds very harsh. 
That's what God is saying in this passage. Earlier today, we already heard a little bit from Ephesians 4. I want to reiterate that a little bit this morning. It pairs along with these verses in Romans 1 to give us more understanding about what is happening in the mind of someone who experiences these things. Paul writes, they are darkened in their understanding. Somebody clicked the lights off. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greedy practices of every kind and every kind of impurity. In both of these passages, Romans 1 and Ephesians chapter 4, it becomes clear that God is not forcing anyone to do what they do not want to do. Rather, He's releasing them from His hand of restraining grace to do exactly what they want to do. Just like Pharaoh, God hardens their heart by letting go of any restraint and allowing them to plunge headfirst into sins of self-destruction. Now, we should not be surprised that technology is being utilized to fashion new ways to advance religion, such as the religion of sexual revolution. Mankind has been using technology as a way to reject the Lord's authority at least since the Tower of Babel. Just think about something for a moment. I was doing some digging recently into some statistics Um, I was looking at this database called the Human Mortality Database. It's really interesting. Uh, In fact, I was blown away by the numbers. It said that just over 96% of all children who are born today can expect to live into adulthood all around the globe. Globally, 96% of all children who are born will survive into adulthood. That number is is staggering. That percentage is really high compared to the rest of history. Consider the fact that between the years of 1750 and 1800, 50% of all children died before adulthood in the state of Germany. The reason I highlight that place is because at the time, Germany was better than just about everywhere else on earth. They had much better medical technology and they were much better off than most places around the globe. Yet 50% of the children who would die between 1750 and 1800, uh, 50% of those who were born during those 50 years would not live into their adulthood. That is a shocking thing. We are living in a time when we have better medical care than any other time in history. We have almost completely eliminated the horrific reality of childhood mortality. But even though that is true, even though children were far more likely to die before reaching adulthood in those years, there are actually far more people in those years per capita that were born to those families that grew to adulthood. In other words, although 50% of them died, they had a lot more kids. And the reason is, we have now divorced the idea of sexuality, sex itself, from childbearing. In our culture, we have completely divorced the idea of sex and children. We have used modern medical advancements to prevent pregnancy or when it comes to snuff it out altogether. The sexual revolution is hand in glove with the abortion industry. Instead of utilizing medical technology to protect life, we have actually instead used it as a way to sacrifice our children on the altar of convenience through abortion. Now, 
I just want you to think about this for a moment. We look back at certain cultures as being wicked and evil. We look at the Canaanites. We, we look at those who worshipped the evil gods of Chemosh and Molech, who were child-worshipping cultures. We look at the Aztecs and the Mayans who believed in human sacrifice. But if you add up all of the human sacrifices of all of those cultures, they do not add up to the amount of children that we have aborted in the womb in this country over the last 50 years. We think those cultures are wicked. We need to look at our own. This is not divorced from the idea of the way we view sex. According to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, this ignorance that is in people, this belief that these actions are not only acceptable but good, this comes because of a hardness of heart. Some people, look, some people really are just going along for the ride with the revolution because they're afraid. Some people just don't want to speak up because they're afraid to get canceled. They're just keeping their head down until they feel like the bullets stop flying. But there are others who defend positions because they have come to truly believe that their positions are good. They are fully convinced that what God calls evil and what we as the church call evil they actually defend it as good. They are convinced of it. That is what Ephesians 4.18 means when it says they were darkened in their understanding. They have a self-imposed ignorance and a self-induced denial of reality. They really believe it. Now, perhaps you notice the pattern in Romans 1. Three times it said that God gave these people something. Verse 24, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, God gave them exactly what they wanted. One of the common excuses that I have heard from people who do not follow Jesus Christ is this. They will say something along the lines of, Jesus didn't give me what I wanted. Why should I follow him? Whether that was a few more days with a family member who died or a restored relationship with another person or whether it was some kind of a financial benefit, whatever, God didn't give me what I wanted. Why should I follow him? We need to understand that often the worst thing God can give us is what we want. When God gives the people in Romans 1 what they want, when he lets them do whatever they want and gives them over to the passions of their heart, It results in their own wickedness and their own judgment, just like it did for Pharaoh. The good news of the gospel is that God did not give us what we wanted. He gave us what we needed in Jesus Christ. He gave us his own son so that sinners of every kind, of every kind, could be forgiven. That is the gospel. The good news is that all the kinds of people you see in Romans chapter 1, every last sin that is presented here, all of the idols of the heart, all of the wicked rejection of the Lord, all of the suppression of truth and unrighteousness, that's not just people who are engaging in the sexual revolution. That is all people. By the time you get to Romans chapter 3, he says there is no one righteous, no, not one. If you think you're exempt from this list, you are not. So although we might not be participants in the sexual revolution We are just as guilty of sin, and therefore we are just as in need of a Savior. We're going to close with the question, how should we as Christians live in the midst of the sexual revolution? So earlier today, Pastor Gage said, I'm going to give you three things because I'm a Baptist, and Harry gave you three application points. 
Well, I'm a conservative Baptist, so I'm going to give you 10. (laughs) Number one, honor God in your body. Earlier, we looked at a little piece of Ephesians 4. I want to share with you Paul's longer statement so that you can see the argument that he's making. Starting in verse 17, he says, Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This kind of suppression of truth and unrighteousness, that's what he's talking about, about the futility of their mind, the way of thinking that the world does. Don't be like that anymore. Don't think like that anymore. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy practice of every kind of impurity. But that is not what you learned in Christ, he says. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus, you were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The sexual revolution is a pagan religion built around self. Paul says, put that to death, and you are to live as new creatures, putting on the new self, which is the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. I don't have conversations with women about sexual things, but I can tell you that every man that I know, every one of them that I have had these sorts of conversations with, every one of them has struggled at least to some point with sinful lust and sinful sexual desire. My guess is, my assumption is that's true for women as well. I don't know. But God has called us by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the renewal of our minds to put off that old way of life and to put it to death by putting on the new self by putting on Christ. We are new creations and we should live like it. But it is a battle. It's a war to actively kill off those old ways of thinking and those old ways of living. It can be really easy to point fingers at the most extreme perversions of the sexual revolution and point out the sin in their lives, but the first thing that you and I must do is by the grace of God, repent and fight the sin that is knocking at the door of our own hearts first. Take the log out of your own eye before you go pointing out things in others. That's number one. Honor God in your body. Number two, get comfortable being an alien and a stranger. We heard a little bit about this language already today. These are words that the New Testament uses to describe how disciples of Jesus are going to fit in here on earth. The point is you're not You are an alien. You are a stranger. You are a sojourner in this land. This world is not your home. Your citizenship is elsewhere. Therefore, we as the church, our entire counterculture of the church is going to be uncomfortable in the world. The things that we say, they're like the scent of death to the world. The gospel is death to those who are perishing. The Bible does not promise that we are going to be treated with acceptance by the public. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, it says likewise that we are going to be imitators of Christ in the way that he was despised and rejected of men. So get comfortable with the idea that your beliefs are anathema 
to a system of the world around you. I'm not saying we shouldn't fight for the reality of sex and gender in the public, but I am saying you're not losing ground if you just keep pointing forward to the kingdom of God. Number three, those who are married in the room, let your marriage reflect the gospel. As I said earlier, the sexual revolution is an attack on the gospel. We live in a world that doesn't understand marriage. It doesn't honor marriage. In fact, I would say that even the people that I know that are in heterosexual marriages, I bump into people all the time. The other day I was in a place, I was getting my car worked on, and the guy who was there, I had to sit there for maybe an hour and a half waiting for this guy to work on my vehicle, and the entire time he complained about his wife to the other people in the place. And I asked him about his wife at one point. He said, yeah, we've been happily married for however many years. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it to me. As a married person, as a Christian, you are able to passively display the gospel just by having a godly marriage. Just live faithfully within your marriage and uphold the basic biblical principles of what it looks like to be a godly husband or a godly wife. Your preaching to the culture won't mean anything if you don't do that. If you're talking about how to have this kind of society that you want and your marriage is in shambles, no one will listen to you. Preach the gospel in your own marriage. Number four, raise your children to embrace biblical truth about sexuality and gender. Parents, you are fighting a really difficult battle. We have to be incredibly vigilant to guard our kids against the constant encroachment of the sexual revolution into our kids' schools and into their media. If it's possible, please get your kids out of the public education system, if it's possible. That is a place that is destructive and toxic to them that is going to promote these worldly beliefs. Now, I know not everyone can do that, but if you are able to do that, I encourage you, I love homeschooling. You want to learn how to do it? I don't know anything about it, but my wife does, and she's phenomenal at it, and she loves to talk to people about how to do it. If you want to know about a Christian school, Steve Schultz is in the back seat back there. Talk to Steve about Christian education. It goes a long way in shielding your kids from the constant bombardment of lies and the confusion that fills their mind if you can possibly guard them from the world in these ways. Number five, Similar, but a little different, because this is about not just your kids, but it's about you. As difficult as it is, avoid media that promotes the sexual revolution. It's almost everywhere now. It's hard to go to any movie in the theater, because even if you go to IMDb and you look the parental section and you try to see what is good in this movie, Nobody believes that these kinds of sexual perversions are evil now, so it's not listed in the things that you can guard against on sites like that. Be careful as much as you can not to consume media that promotes and celebrates this false religion. The entire purpose of many characters in modern television is to desensitize you to wicked behavior. That is not me making it up. In fact, I I should have probably put some quotes here, but I just looked up when I was preparing for this, uh, some of the people who have been engaged in media for years, they're not afraid to tell you their entire purpose of creating certain films and shows and episodes and characters is so that they can convince the public to agree with and support these positions. Guard yourself, because I don't think we realize just how easily we are affected 
by these things and just how quickly we become desensitized to them. There are things that you probably see on television or Netflix or whatever now that 10 years ago would have offended your conscience deeply. Guard yourself against what you are observing. Psalm 101 verse 3 says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away from him. It shall not cling to me. Be careful what you are absorbing from the culture. Number six, do not attend ceremonies that celebrate the perversion of marriage. I know a lot of people will say, I love them, they're my family. I'm just going to go to one part and not the other. I'll go to the ceremony and not the party, or I'll go to the party and not the ceremony. I'm just going to go in one way or the other. I'm just going to give them the gift. I'm just going to find some way that I can be around this ceremony that's taking place. One of the most hateful things that you can do for somebody who's living in a sinful lifestyle of rebellion against the Lord is to cheer them on in their sin. Your presence at a wedding, that is a tacit approval of what is taking place. The very last line of Romans says, they not only do them, speaking of all these lists of sins that you find in Romans 1, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You stand there and you cheer them on and you're just as guilty. Whether you are practicing sexual sin or you are sitting in the front row cheering them on or you're in the back row giving your approval by your attendance, you are sending a message of approval to those who practice sin of this nature. That is behavior that the Lord condemns. Number seven, love people who are engaged in lifestyles of sexual sin by treating them with dignity. Here's a place where the church often makes a lot of mistakes. We are told by our Christian culture sometimes to treat people with contempt or disgust because of the lifestyle that they lead or the sins they commit. Well, consider Jesus, who was perfectly pure. Consider Jesus everyone must have been disgusting to him. You think that your sins are that much better? (laughs) Everyone must have been disgusting in that sense to him. Everyone that he was with was constantly thinking wicked thoughts and saying wicked words and doing wicked things and doing all of them with wicked motives. But he still looked upon us with compassion like sheep without a shepherd. And he graciously welcomed sinners into his presence to preach the good news to them. You don't have to like what people do but treat them with dignity. You are called to love all people and treat them as image bearers of God. Number eight, love people who are engaged in lifestyles of sexual sin by being clear about God's righteous standards. Treating someone with dignity does not mean that you should avoid hard conversations. It should be made clear that you do hold different convictions than they do. Now, I'm not saying to immediately preach a fire and brimstone sermon to them, But just like you would for anyone who was not a believer, if you are around them for any length of time, they should know that you follow the Lord and you do what he says as he had put it forward in Scripture. Number nine, love people who are engaged in lifestyles of sexual sin by preaching the gospel to them. It's not enough to simply inform people that you disagree with their lifestyle. It's not just enough to draw a line in the sand and say, this is how far I'll go and not cross. Nobody but Jesus ever met the perfect standard of God. If you could convince an LGBTQIA whatever else person to simply become a heterosexual individual, 
somebody who doesn't practice sexual sin, somebody who stops looking at pornography, somebody who stops committing adultery, somebody who stops fornicating, somebody who stops whatever else they might be doing in the long list of perversity that is out there, if you just convince them to stop, that does nothing but maybe shorten the list of sins they'll pay for in hell. More likely, it just changes what those sins are. Heterosexuality doesn't save anybody. Preach the gospel that God forgives people who repent and turn away from sin. Preach the gospel that everyone who trusts in Christ will be saved. And very importantly, number 10, pray, 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 pray. Here we are living through a literal revolution. We're on a train heading in the wrong direction, and it just keeps speeding up. But we know that the Lord is the one who can not only slow that train down, but completely turn it in the right direction. So pray. Pray for the people that you know who are living in sexual sin. If they've been given over to God to feel and believe these things, look, you're not going to be able to convince them. There is no argument that you can make. You cannot appeal to nature or biology because God has given them over to do what is, not, what is contrary to nature. Even if you were somehow to become the supreme ruler of our country, let's just say that you get to be the king of America for a day and you can change all the laws unilaterally that you want. You can alter the Constitution. You can create all sorts of rules and standards. Whatever you want the rules to be, you put them in place. Even if you were to do that, it will never change a heart. It will not change people's desires. It might prohibit behavior, but it's not going to transform what people want. Just like the plagues never did more than temporarily nudge Pharaoh, you can never change the heart of those who love their sin. Regardless of what kind of sin it is, it doesn't matter. You can't change that. Just like anyone else, Anyone with whom you share the gospel, God has to do a work of transformation. God has to do a work of conviction. God has to do a work of forgiveness. God has to save. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes an extensive list of sins that includes adultery and homosexuality. And at the conclusion of that list, he says, And such were some of you. Such were some of you perhaps in this room. But he says, You were, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The way that the church survives and thrives in the face of a moral revolution like this kind is by seeing God continue to build His church. And He will do that in the face of any culture and any society. If the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, do you really think the sexual revolution will? God builds his kingdom by continually bringing individuals out of that kingdom and into his own, out of darkness and into marvelous, marvelous light. So don't give up on them. Pray for them. Pray for yourself. Listen, you really think you're that much better? You really think that you can't fall short? Earlier we, we spoke of David. We even spoke about his sexual sin. David never would have thought that he, he was going to fall that far. If you would have just taken David and rewound the tape a, a couple of years, and you told him, David, this is what you're going to do, I don't think he would believe you. Earlier we heard about drift. Earlier we heard about letting the needle just turn one degree in the wrong direction. Pray for yourself. 
that the Lord would guard you against sexual perversity and pray for genuine revival. One of the greatest failures in my own life that I'll confess is that when it comes to the sexual revolution, I am just really quick to be irritated. I am really quick to be angered. I am really quick to be worried. I am really quick to be troubled. I am really quick to be concerned about what my kids' world is going to be like when they grow up. And I'm so quick to be in those mindsets that I rarely take those opportunities to actually trust in the Lord through prayer. Let it serve as a reminder to you that so many people in our land have been given over to a depraved mind. I want to challenge you. Every time you see a pride flag of any color, I mean, there are all sorts now, whenever you see one of those flags, whenever you see one of those decals on the back of a car, whenever you see somebody put that on their backpack at school, whenever you see somebody waving the agenda in front of your face, whenever you see it present on television or in movies, whenever you see it show up in your actual life, pray that the Lord would bring about revival. It's not that he's never done this. He certainly has. Revival is what happens when the culture at large begins to bow the knee to Jesus. It's what happens when large swaths of people see that they have been rebels and that they need to become subservient by bowing themselves before the king. So let's pray that the Lord would bring revival and that many people would not just leave their sin behind, but that they would receive Jesus Christ and they would love him, and they would follow him forever. That is what we should be hoping for as the way we as a church relate to the sexual revolution in our culture. Let's pray that God would break through this rebellion just like he broke through yours. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we just give you thanks. For Lord, if it were up to us, if we got what we wanted, if you just left us to our own devices, we would be swimming in the same stream as the rest of our culture. We thank you, God, that even though we were sinners, you have called us out and made us your children. And Lord, we pray that now as we live as saints in a dark world, as we live as a nation of royal priests, I just pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be beacons of light that we would be proclaimers of truth, that we would bear the standard of righteousness and holiness, but that we would do so in such a way that proclaims to everyone, come in, we want you to know him, our king. So Lord, I just pray that you would bring revival in our churches, that you would bring revival in our people, that we would put away the old self, that we would crucify it with its passions and we would put on Christ. And that in doing so, we would shine brighter to our neighborhoods and to our community and to the world around us. And Lord, I pray that through our churches, you would draw many to yourself and that the kingdom of darkness that has ensnared so many would not prevail against you and not prevail against your church. In Jesus' name, we pray these things and for your glory, we pray them. Amen.